Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Any study of the justice of God, at least for those who have trusted in Christ, must lead to humility and thankfulness, where we turn to the Lord and say, thank you for not giving me what I deserved, and in Christ, giving me what I did not deserve. And yet, in the Christian life, we can still sometimes develop that stiff neck that resists God, that returns to a place of pride and stubbornness and arrogance and is hesitant to do what God has called us to do. We know better, but we return to this. This is what is ingrained in our hearts, in our sin nature. We resist God. Psalm 75 serves as a quiz of sorts for the Christian life. It it makes it obvious that there's no logical choice other than to submit to the God of justice. We look at what his justice is like, and there's, there's nothing else reasonable to choose except humility, to bow ourselves before him. And it's a psalm written in such a way that it's, it's a heart that is praising God. It begins with thankfulness, right? The, the kind of response that we sang today, the first verse, we thank you, oh God, we thank you. Thankfulness is a key to humility. It continues on and praises God for his power over all the earth. Then in the the center of the psalm, we have words from God. You see them there in verses 4 and 5 as the voice of God speaks to the reader, Oh, do not deal boastfully. Do not lift up your horn. We'll talk about what that means. Do not have a stiff neck. Humble. We are to humble ourselves before the Lord. It returns in the next few verses to statements about God's judgment that He will judge. And then in the final section of the psalm, kind of like the beginning, returns to praise and thanksgiving to God. So it becomes clear to us that we are to humble ourselves before the judge of the earth. The theme of this psalm to humble ourselves before the judge of the earth. And as we think about doing that, we want to take this psalm as sort of a test of sorts. Are there signs in my life that I'm humbling myself before the judge of the earth? As we work through each section, we're going to listen to God's command to humble ourselves and sort of beg that question. The the tricky thing about humility is that we tend to look at it in our lives and think, yeah, I I think I'm, I mean, I'm doing okay. I can't say I'm doing well because then I'd be proud, but I think I'm doing all right. I think I'm fairly humble, right? It's a little bit slippery and deceitful, isn't it? And so as we can consider this psalm, we find that judging our humility is not found by looking at ourselves or looking at others, but by looking to the judge of all the earth and just getting low. So let's consider the judge of all the earth and ask ourselves that question, am I humbled before him? Let's see what the humble do and how they respond. Am I humbled before him? Well, first of all, we notice today that the humble give thanks that God is near. We see this in verse 1. The humble give thanks that God is near. And there, the humble are crying out to God. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. Twice they repeat it. Why do they give thanks? The next phrase. Because, or for, your wondrous works declare that your name is near. The humble are thankful for the works of God because the works of God prove that God is near. Now, as we pause to reflect on that, we have to admit that it's pride that doesn't want God to be near. It's pride that resists the work of God. And we've all been there at various points. We don't like how God has handled a situation. We've prayed for something He has not given it, and so we begin to resist God in our hearts. That's pride. That's us saying, I know what's better. I know what's better than God who reigns supreme over the entire universe. 
And so our hearts kind of harden to Him, and we no longer want to be near to Him because in our judgment, we've assessed that God's works were not good enough. But the humble are thankful for the works of God. They're thankful that He is near. They're they're excited to draw near to God and thankful for what God has done and will do. This is a mark of humility, thankfulness for God and God's nearness. Humility is necessary in any good relationship. Pride divides, humility unites. You've experienced this. Sort of a humorous example of this is one of our relational expressions, the hug, right? When we want to be close to someone, express our love to someone, we might give them a hug. Now, there's an initial category of hugs. There are appropriate hugs and inappropriate hugs. And so, of course, we want to work within the realm of appropriate hugs, those we should be hugging. But within that category of appropriate hugs, there's another category that's a little easier to mess up. That is welcome or unwelcome hugs. It might be appropriate for me to give somebody a hug, but the question is, did they want that hug? I tried to assess this when interacting with people, and I can think back to a scenario not too long ago where I was with some, a group of close friends, a scenario that was very clearly in the realm of appropriate to give somebody a hug. And I was interacting with somebody and uh, began to think, you know, I think it'd be appropriate. They're, they've gone through some tough stuff just to show them my care and affection, and now's the time for a hug. And as I could read them, I thought, yeah, I think they'd welcome a hug. And so as I went in for the hug, it became obvious that the hug was not welcome, (laughs) right? Their body kind of stiffened up like this, you know, and so you find yourself just wrapping yourself around their arms and kind of, all right, well, anyway, nice to see you, you know, and get some distance there and walk off the other direction. Maybe you've experienced this, maybe you haven't, right? The hug wasn't welcome. It's amazing how what can be an encouraging sign of close relationship can become so distancing when not welcomed by both parties, and one kind of stiffens up as the other seeks to embrace This is what happens in our relationship with God. God draws near to us in Christ, but in our hardness of heart, in our pride, in our rebellion, we stiffen up. No, I don't like what you've done, God. We try to reject the warm embrace of a God who has drawn near to us in Christ. But the humble are thankful that God is near There's a twisted form of pride out there that shows itself as humility, that maybe maybe yields to God in some ways, but just to serve my purposes, to make my life better. I'll, I'll sort of bow to God on the outside so that maybe God's blessing will come upon me and help my life be the way I want it to be. But this is not the kind of humility that is just thankful for the works of God, just thankful for what God has done and is doing, and thankful to have Him near in Christ. I wonder, do we have tender hearts to God and His works? What about those works that we didn't want, the things from Him that we didn't ask for? Or His action sometimes to say to us, not yet, in response to our prayers, We tend to give in to pride and say in our hearts, well then, get away from me, I know better, and we stiffen up at the warm embrace of God. But gratitude flows from humility, a humility that recognizes that I was dead in my trespasses and sins until Christ gave me life. When we truly see how helpless and needy we are, we become thankful for God's help in our lives, but our pride instead tells us that we're okay. And we become unthankful and wonder why God isn't doing more for us. When we truly see how sinful we are and how deserving of punishment, we become thankful for God's mercy. But then pride creeps in and tells us that, oh, our sin isn't that bad. There are other people that have sinned far worse than I have. And we begin to complain about our state in life. You know, compared to all these other people, I'm doing pretty well. God, why aren't you being better to me? When we truly see how much we've been forgiven, we begin to love God more and more. 
Consider the story in Luke chapter 7. The one who's forgiven much, loves much. But when our pride blinds us to our sin and causes us to ignore how much we've been forgiven, our, our love for God fades. We become unthankful and discontent and proud. Are you delighting in God's nearness? If not, you are likely succumbing to pride in your heart. What you need is a clearer picture of God's justice to humble you before Him. And that's where we go next in verses 2 to 3. Here we are going to see that the humble remember that God will judge. The humble remember that God will judge. Now you're going to notice that the outline on the PowerPoint begins to work inward towards point 3, then point 4 will match point 2, and point 5, yep, five points today. We're going to be okay, don't worry. Point five matches point one. There's thanksgiving and praise at one and five. There's a vision of God's justice at two and four. And point three is the center of the psalm where God commands us not to be proud. That's the theme, humble ourselves before the Lord. So here, we have this uh, vision of God's justice, and God tells us to remember that He will judge. It, it's the Word of God here in verses 2 and 3, written down by the psalmist. God says this, When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. And there's a pause there, I think, so we can reflect on what has just been said to marvel at the powerful justice of God. So notice what God has said. First of all, when I choose the proper time, God's justice comes always at the proper time. The the word I, or the, the personal pronoun I, is at the front of the sentence. It's in a, a position of emphasis. I, I myself, choose the proper time. God alone knows the perfect time for justice and judgment. Always. Not only that, the next phrase reminds us that He will judge. That's a promise. I will judge, says the Lord. But He will judge uprightly. He will judge with equity uprightness. God always judges the right way. So it's always at the perfect time, always the right judgment. And what does this result in? Verse 3, the earth and all its habitants are dissolved. No one can stand before the justice of God. Everything falls apart. God is the Almighty. And when true justice is poured out, the recognition is that none of us can stand before him. If it weren't for forgiveness, all of us would be dissolved in His presence. The final phrase of verse 3 reminds us that it's God who set up the pillars of the earth. And this is a metaphor expressing that it's God who holds the world together. Just, just looking at the mighty power of God. At His word, He could dissolve everything. And it's by His power that the very world is held together. He holds His pillars together. It's all Him. Who are we to be proud before the One who holds all things together and at His perfect justice could dissolve everything in an instant? This is the just might and power of God. So God speaks with power here and we are to feel very small in response to these verses. The humble Remember that God will judge. I will judge uprightly, he says in verse 2. And we are right to remember that. We are right to remember that God will judge as he has promised to keep our eyes set on his power and his justice. To feel small before the one who holds the universe together. We look at the scriptures and the Bible's clear that this kind of judgment is coming. 2 Peter chapter 3, for instance, verses 10 through 13, talks about the day when the earth will melt with a fervent heat. Now, praise God, you and I who have trusted in Christ are not in that judgment of God. And so, in verse 13, Peter closes by saying, we look for the new heaven and the new earth. But we have to remember, 
God as creator, supreme being, and judge of the universe holds it all together and has the right to dissolve it all all away because of our unrighteousness and sin. He has that power, and He will do that one day at the perfect time. This reminds us we need to let God's justice rule in our lives, right? Romans 12, verses 18 to 20 reminds us that vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. It's not our task. Now, there are times when God uses the authorities He's granted on earth to uphold what is right and to put down evil. But even those are expressions of God's supreme authority, aren't they? God is the righteous judge. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 reminds us that if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. We would all melt away before Him, but then the psalm gives us hope. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God's forgiveness doesn't call us to just this flippant, arrogant life that says, hey, I'm forgiven, I can live how I want. No, the forgiven ought to be the most humble of them all. Fearing a God who could have dissolved me away, should have dissolved me away in a moment for my sin, but instead forgave me. Should I not go lower than anyone else before this kind of king? God has promised justice. He is the judge. Everything melts away before Him. Remember that and humble yourself before the God who will judge. Then we come to verses 4 and 5. And here enters a, a, a metaphor that God uses. I think this is God continuing to speak here. Here we see that the humble yield to God's authority. And again, I think this is the voice of God speaking through the psalmist here. God says to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. To the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up the horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. Four phrases. They're all parallel to one another. They all have the same kind of message. And put negatively, it's don't be proud. Put positively, it's be humble. Humble yourselves. Yield to God's authority. God uses a metaphor in these verses that will come up again in in verse 10. And it's a helpful picture for us. Maybe even the the kids could help me act this out a little bit. Okay, so let's build the metaphor, build the the picture here. It starts in the first part of verse 4, and God says to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. So this is speaking proudly about ourselves. And so we could begin by kind of just standing up tall, right, and saying big things about me and what I've done. This is boastfulness. God says, don't. Next, he says to the wicked, and that's in parallel with, with the boastful. And so it's important to point out that pride, boastfulness, is wickedness. It's not a slip-up. It's not like, well, I guess that was a little proud. I shouldn't have said that. No, it's pure evil. So he says to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Okay, so here's we come to our first picture. I want you to imagine an ox, all right? Farmers in the old days and this time would use oxen to do their farming and to have a special, especially strong, you know, plow labor, they would take two oxen next to each other. But it's difficult to get two oxen to stay, you know, together with one another, so they'd use what's called a yoke. Maybe you've seen one of these before. It's kind of a a wood beam that goes across the top, and then it has two neck loops, okay? And, And so what the farmer would do is he would attach the yoke to one oxen and to another oxen, and now they could work in tandem. That would be attached to a plow or something else, and so then he could drive the oxen, and they would pull the plow behind them. But not all oxen were yielding. The oxen that had the the horn, I guess I didn't need to pluralize oxen, it's already plural. The oxen that had the horns were often those competing for that position of alpha in the group of oxen, right? And so the horn, the larger it was, was a sign of strength. In fact, some Bibles translate the word horn strength, though it is literally horn. 
And so this oxen with his big horns, you can imagine the farmer coming up to the oxen and seeking to put the yoke on the oxen. And what does that oxen do? He lifts the horn in rebellion against his master. This is so crucial. God repeats the phrase twice. This is right at the center of the psalm, and it's repeated in parallel twice. Do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. This is the attitude that takes my sign of strength, whatever I have to boast about, and lifts it up against the Lord. Oh, you're going to try to control me? Uh-uh, not today. And so maybe, kids, you can help me with some sound of an ox. What sound does an angry ox make, right? You know, and so it's lifting up its head and its horns, trying to resist the work of the master. This is the picture that God portrays. And it's vivid, isn't it? And the final phrase adds to the metaphor. Do not speak with what? A stiff neck. Again, some translations change this to insolent pride because it's what it's representing, but it's literally a stiff neck. And I think it adds to the word picture. What's the ox doing as he resists the farmer? Stiffening his neck. You will not put me in the yoke, the oxen. Well, oxen can't speak, so it falls apart there, right? You sense it. You sense it. Let that picture stick in your head. And from the voice of God here, don't be like an ox. It's our memory verse this week, actually, Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. If you've been tracking along with our memory verses in Psalm 32, David is writing to Israelites and he's encouraging them not to be stiff-necked about their sin. And in verses 8 and 9, he says, I will guide you. Listen to my instruction, David says. Do not be like the horse or mule, parentheses, which are stubborn, who, who have to have a bit and bridle or else they will not come near you, David says. The the rebellion and stubbornness of the animals become an illustration for what can happen in our hearts. So David in Psalm 32, or our psalmist here, speaking, uh, God speaking through him says, Do not resist. Don't have a stiff neck. Don't have a hard heart. Don't lift up your horn. Whatever strength you think you have, don't even try to resist the will of God. Humble yourself. The humble yield before God. I was reading a story recently of a racehorse named Chautauqua. Have you heard of this racehorse? One of the fastest horses in the world. Back in the uh, 2018, I think 2019, Chautauqua, they had all, everybody had high hopes for Chautauqua, this gray, that silver speed uh, how, how many records was this horse going to break? How many championships would this horse win? Until one day, the horse got to the gate. The starting thing, gun went off. All the horses shot out of the gate. And Chautauqua just stood there. The jockey doing everything he could to get the horse to move forward. I mean, even anything forward would have been a something. But nothing. The horse just stood. An article was later written about the horse named Chautauqua. It appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, Australia being the place where Chautauqua lived and was kept. Chautauqua was a racehorse, you see, a successful one, a very special once-in-a-lifetime horse, the horse's owner says. The gray flash, the thunder down under, the world's best sprinter, some said. The horse had won close to nine million in prize money. And then, inexplicably, he stopped. You can lead a horse to the line, but you can't make him move. So, Chautauqua no longer races. He's a show horse now. Uh, Maybe a happy ending? I don't know. But the disappointment of the horse's owner. This horse had so much potential, but what happened? Rebellion, stubbornness. The horse had decided, nope, I'm going to do my own thing. 
God's words to us here in verses 4 and 5 are so clear. Don't be like an ox. Don't be like a horse or a mule which are stubborn against their master. Don't lift the horn and pry. Don't stiffen your neck against what God is seeking to do in your life. The humble yield to God's authority. The Bible often talks about this as having a broken and contrite spirit or broken and contrite heart. Nancy Lee DeMoss writing about that brokenness gives us some helpful ideas with it. Brokenness is the shattering of my self-will, she says. The absolute surrender of my will to the will of God. It's saying, yes, Lord. No resistance, no chafing, no stubbornness, simply submitting myself to his direction and will in my life. We must strip ourselves of our self-will and just humble ourselves before the Lord, yielded to the master's good will for us. Sometimes we think we're doing this by standing on the outside, but inside we're really sitting down or doing the opposite of whatever we were told to do. But this is not the kind of yielding to God that this passage refers to. It's a yieldedness of the heart. I wonder, are you resisting the Lord today? Most of us think we aren't. That's one of the sneaky things about pride and humility, isn't it? It's blinding. We, we look at our lives and we say, well, actually, no, I think I'm doing pretty well. And suddenly we're proud about how humble we are. But here are some signs, here are some ways you might look at your own life and think through, is there pride creeping in? If you are serious about humility and seeking help and hunting and killing your pride, which I encourage you to be, here's a scary thing you can do. Ask someone close to you, a spouse or close friend, if they see any signs of pride in your life. Ask them. My guess is they'll see it before you do and can help you. But remember, even if they say no, it doesn't mean that it's not there. I wonder, does it bother you if someone thinks you were wrong? Can you let it go? Or do you feel the urge to clarify and correct? Is it hard for you to say, I was wrong, without clarification, qualification, or defense? Is it difficult for you to adjust your plans when someone else suggests something different than you were expecting? Or when circumstances don't go according to your plan, do you get frustrated? Do you find yourself saying, I'm sure I didn't handle things perfectly, or I could have done better, but then moving on to talk about someone else's sin. Maybe the most tricky of all is our false humility, which is willing to admit that I'm not perfect, but only talk about the sins of others. Or maybe even on a Sunday, we come away and say, boy, what a convicting sermon that was giving ourselves a sense that, yeah, I'm humble, I found it convicting. But the truly humble change. The truly humble yield to the Word of God. How often have I returned the next Sunday, even as the one who preached the sermon, and someone asked me, oh, what was last Sunday's sermon about? Well, let me think about that for a moment. But had I been daily yielding to the Word of God that was preached that Sunday, I think I'd remember it a little better the following Sunday. Are our hearts so yielded to the Word of God that we're not just ready to say, oh, very convicting, but then daily we're laboring to change, yielding to what the Master's Word has said to us that Sunday. Do you find yourself operating with low-level frustration all the time, And little things tend to set you off. Do you have difficulty adjusting to God's redirections? Do you have a difficult time with criticism or instruction? Have people called you stubborn? All of these are signs of pride in our lives and in our hearts. All of us have acted this way in the past. 
the call of God in Psalm 75 verses 4 and 5 is to yield. It's to surrender. It's to hate the pride in our hearts and just get low before the Lord. To loosen our necks. To relax and submit to His good will for us. Friend, I encourage you, yield, surrender, don't resist the God of the universe. As we come to the next section, we repeat to this idea of something that we know about God. Earlier, we had seen that God, God will judge, and the humble, of course, remember that God will judge. But now in point four, we see the humble acknowledge that God is the judge. And that phrase is found exactly in verse seven, but God is the judge. And so in these verses, it's almost the response of the congregation to God. Like they're returning to God and saying, yes, we agree. You are the judge of the universe. All three verses, 6, 7, and 8, begin with the word for or because. So these are, these are reasons for something. I think they form the reasons that it's so important to yield to God back in verses 4 and 5. God says, don't resist. Why not, we could ask, and verses 6 through 8 answers that question. First of all, verse 6, exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. And these words reference the, the expanse of the earth. Actually, it, the word east and west are not in the text. It's a metaphor from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting. Everywhere the sun goes, you won't find exaltation. Only God lifts up. The word south is more literally the word wilderness. So the idea is wherever you search, even if you search the wilderness. Now, from Israel, the wilderness was to the south, and so it makes sense. But even if you were to search the wilderness, you won't find exaltation. Why? Verse 7, the next because statement. Because God is the judge. Well, what does that mean specifically? He puts down one and exalts another. It belongs to God to put one down and to exalt another. And much of the trouble in human history is our efforts to exalt ourselves. It's wickedness at its core. It's what Satan did in the garden. It's the lie that Adam and Eve believed when Satan deceived them about the fruit. We try to exalt ourselves, but God is the judge. You won't find true exaltation anywhere but from his hand. He alone lifts one up and puts down another. We come to our third reason in verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Uh, The cup of God's wrath is a common metaphor in Scripture. It's used in Isaiah. It's used in Revelation, uh, the end of time there as God pours out his wrath. Uh, It's used in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, interestingly, in the same prophecy we referenced last week in Jeremiah 25, when Jeremiah, at God's command, tells Israel that the captivity will be 70 years. Remember that from the last psalm, Psalm 74? It's in that same chapter, Jeremiah 25, that Jeremiah predicts in verse 15 that God has a cup of wrath. I happened to read that in my devotions yesterday morning. And this really fun idea occurred to me. Maybe, we don't know the origin of Psalm 75, but just maybe Psalm 74 was written as they wonder what God is doing and how long is this going to be. And then maybe they read or, or heard from Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, 70 years, and there's a cup of God's wrath coming. And now Psalm 75 is their response. Oh, we give thanks, O oh God, for there is a cup of wrath that God will pour out on the wicked. I don't know. It's just a fun thing to think about. At any rate, God does have a cup of wrath because all the actions of the wicked, he tracks and knows God is just and he's righteous and he will put evil down. And every evil deed adds to the wrath in that cup and it will be poured out. Now, there are examples of God pouring out his wrath through scripture at different points. 
But ultimately, Scripture points to the final pouring out of God's wrath, and there's the final example of that cup of wrath in the book of Revelation. You can read about it in chapter 14 or chapter 18. And on that day, at the end of time, God will finally pour out his cup of wrath on all the evil and the wicked, Satan included, who will be bound in the lake of fire for eternal torment. Everyone who is wicked will drain down, drink in entirety the cup of God's wrath. That's what verse 8 says, and it's true. The congregation confesses to God His power to judge. And the humble must acknowledge that God is the judge. Many of you know I coached soccer for a number of years. And I found as a coach that uh, there were some ways, some things I could tell the players that would help them be more successful on the field. One of the common temptations as a player is to... Uh, argue with the referee. It's, it's a strong temptation because referees are not perfect, right? And so they, they often got calls wrong. I mean, as a player, sometimes you could see it. Like, this happened, this, I saw it, it was clear, and the referee just got it wrong. And so players would often just spend their time and energy arguing with the referee. And I saw it over and over and over again. What would happen is the, the player would, would see something, they'd disagree with the referee, they'd start yelling at the referee. Now, all of a sudden, their thought, their attention, everything was directed at the referee. They're frustrated with him. And you can guess the referee probably got frustrated back. It's not pleasant to be yelled at and screamed at and so on and so forth and to have this kind of argument going on. And inevitably, what would happen to that player is he would begin to just play horribly. Because all of his thoughts, all of his attention was on this terrible ref who's ruining the game for us. No longer is he thinking about his team and how he can help and what he needs to be doing as a player and how he can play better. All of his thought is going to this referee and now the referee's frustrated with him. So inevitably what would happen after that? The player starts playing poorly and they're frustrated and angry and so then they do something that's against the rules and the ref is just waiting to hand out in soccer what's called a yellow card. A penalty. Aha! Or then maybe even the red card where the player has to go off the field. And so the phrase I would use with our players is, hey, the referee on the soccer field, the referee is king. Just get over it and move on. He's going to get some calls right. He's going to get some calls wrong. But you're wasting your energy to argue against him. Have you ever seen a referee, after a conversation with a player, change his call? Maybe this time will be the first time. That's what we think, right? No. (laughs) Just let it go. Focus on playing better. Focus on your team. The referee is king. Get over it. Submit. Yield. Play on. And the players who could do that were successful. The players who could not submit to the authority of the referee on the field struggled and struggled and struggled and struggled. When we acknowledge that God is the judge, we recognize His sovereign rule over us and we yield, we submit. And it seems silly, but there will be times when we think God gets it wrong. If we could think that on a soccer field, we can think that in life, but think about it. Now we're arguing with the sovereign ruler of the universe. He never gets it wrong. All the more reason for us to yield and to submit, and to bow before Him. He is the judge. The humble, of course, acknowledge this. We don't look for exaltation from others. Humility comes from a right fear of God, from Him and Him alone. The question is, are you ready for God's judgment? Are you ready for that cup of wrath that will be poured out on anyone who has ever been proud or arrogant? Think about that for a moment. That's the wickedness in this psalm that deserves the cup of wrath. Anyone who has been proud or arrogant. That's bad news for us. That's all of us. We've all thought highly of ourselves. We've all tried to promote ourselves. This is, this is what we have done. And so we all deserve this cup of wrath. What will happen? That leads us to then the final section. The humble praise God's justice forever. 
This is, in verse 9, the personal response of the psalmist is, I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And it seems to be God's voice again that comes in in verse 10. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. And so you have the statement of God using the example of the horn again. So kids, you can imagine the ox one more time with his mighty horns lifting his head against God and stiffening the neck. And now God says in closing, Those who resist me, I just cut their horns off. But the righteous, those who are right with me, I will exalt. This is a principle in Scripture that comes up over and over and over. And it goes back to what we read in verse 7, that it's God is the judge. He's the one who puts one down and exalts another. Jesus taught this way. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a principle all through Scripture. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. God wins, and it's futile to resist Him. This is for the righteous, those who are right with God and forgiven and ready to praise His name forever. One more connection here with that Babylonian captivity that we talked about. Not only Jeremiah 25, which predicted the 70 years and also predicted God's cup of wrath, which may be part of relating this psalm, but the metaphor of the ox brings something else to mind. Do you remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is the king that came to Jerusalem and destroyed it and in three separate deportations took the people of Israel, Daniel included, back to Babylon. And you could track the story of Daniel and the book of Daniel and, and what happened there. But there's a unique story in the middle of the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his power and his reign. And he's proud, but he has a dream. Daniel had been empowered by God to interpret these dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel to him and asks for the interpretation. You remember Daniel says, oh, that this was a dream for your enemies, but it's for you. Daniel begins to explain the dream, and sure enough, we could, we could read about it. Kids, you probably remember the story. Adults, maybe you've heard the story as well. In Daniel chapter 4, at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking in the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth. I'm not being dramatic. That's what it says. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he turns into an animal, basically. He eats grass like the oxen, verse 32. Verse 33, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like the oxen. There's the metaphor, the oxen. It's almost as if God is in Nebuchadnezzar's life saying, you want to act act like an ox and resist me? Fine, be an ox. So Nebuchadnezzar spends time and he's eating grass. His body's wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Unkempt, eating grass, acting like an ox. This is God's response in Nebuchadnezzar's life to humble him in his pride. But notice Nebuchadnezzar's response afterwards. In verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar actually speaks in the book of Daniel here. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. The humbled praise God's justice forever. Nebuchadnezzar goes on, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellence and majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, and his ways justice. And listen to this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Sounds kind of like Psalm 75 to me. To the Lord belongs exaltation and putting down. Nebuchadnezzar experienced it. In his pride against God, God humbled him. One who had had a stiff neck and had lifted his horn against the Almighty God spent time eating grass like an ox. But those who humble themselves praise God's justice forever. We need to step back from this psalm and think about some of its realities. God is the judge and his judgment is coming and he has a cup full of wrath and everyone who has ever exalted himself will drink down all of God's wrath and that's all of us. Is there any way to be saved from God's wrath? Certainly we've all acted selfishly. We've all been arrogant and proud. Is there any way to avoid God's judgment on this wickedness? Yes, God has provided a way of salvation. God sent His Son, Jesus, to live a selfless, obedient life. Jesus never once resisted the Father's will. He was never once stiff-necked or arrogant. He humbled Himself and became obedient even unto the death of the cross. On that cross, Jesus literally drank the cup of God's wrath. You remember what he prayed to the Father the night before his death? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus drank the Father's wrath and he drank down every last drop of God's wrath. The cup that was reserved for me, the cup full of my arrogance and pride, Jesus drank it down completely. And then he said, it is finished. God offers salvation to those who accept Jesus Christ as their substitute. Those who trust in him for salvation. Because of Jesus, there's no wrath left in that cup for me. It's gone. And that accepting of salvation in other terms is to humble ourselves before God and admit our need to be saved. The Lord Jesus uses this example in Luke chapter 18 when he talks about this parable of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, as Jesus puts it. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus concludes, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Sound familiar? Oh friend, humble yourself before the Lord today. Accept the salvation that God offers you in the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself in your place and took God's wrath. Sadly, there are many in the world who reject the payment of Jesus Christ, and one day, because they have rejected Jesus, they will drink down that cup of God's wrath. Don't reject the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been saved from God's wrath, then we must yield to God's authority. We, more than anyone, have reason to be humble before the Lord because we know the cost of our sin. We see it in Jesus, Him on the cross. That should have been me. We know what we deserved. 
We know the justice of God. We know what was coming for us. And so it's right for us to feel small and undeserving before Him. This is where both humility and contentment come from. Jesus drank the cup for me, and so I am thankful. We sang it together in Jesus, thank you. You, the perfect Holy One, acknowledging God's justice, crushed your Son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. And so we say, thank you, Lord. This is where humility and contentment come from, a meditation on the gospel and understanding what Jesus has done for us. Friends, please soften your heart before the Lord. Have you seen pride or arrogance or stubbornness or discontentment creeping up in you? Have you dared to be frustrated with the Lord? Lay down your rebellion. He's the judge. Humble yourself under his mighty hand again. He will lift you up. Stop resisting. Oh, surrender to him. Surrender. This is the call of God to us in Psalm 75. The God who is judge, who in his justice will pour out his wrath on evil, but at the same time offers us forgiveness in Christ And the right response for those who've trusted in Christ is to go low before our God. To loosen up our necks. Lower our horns before Him. Bow. Don't be stubborn any longer before your God. Father, we thank You for the graphic metaphors of this psalm. We do not want to be a stubborn people. We confess that our hearts are often there. Oh, help us. Help us to bow our hearts before you today. I pray for those listening here in this room, in our growing room or online. There may be stubborn hearts sitting among us right now. And Father, I confess I'm prone to it in my own heart. Humiliate us. Crush us. Give us broken and contrite hearts before you. May we see with clarity the massive size of our sin, the enormous cost of your love for us on the cross. May we weep before you over our sin and your kindness to us. Fill our hearts with love and humility and yieldedness and surrender that just follows your word with humility, lowliness of heart, same example our Savior set for us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.